There was a moment when the lights went out When death had claimed its victory The king of love had given up his life The darkest day in history They're on a cross they made for sinners For every curse is blood atoned One final breath and it was finished Not the end we could have known For the earth began to shake and the veil was torn What sacrifice was made As the heavens roared All hail And all hail King Jesus And all hail the Lord of heaven Confess that He is Lord, lift up. 
today is from Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and yet its leaves does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's sing.
is devoted like a ring of solid gold like a vow that is tested like a covenant of old your love is enduring through the winter rain and beyond the horizon with mercy for today faithful you have been and faithful you will be you pledge yourself to me and that's why i sing your praise will ever be on my lips ever be on my lips your praise will ever be on my lips ever be on my lips your praise will Ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your kindness makes us whole You shoulder our weakness And strength becomes our own Now you're making me like you Clothing me in white Bringing beauty from ashes For you will be our bride Free of the guilt and rid her of all the shame And known by her true name And that's why I sing Your praise will ever be on my lips Ever be on my lips Your praise will ever be on my lips Ever be on my lips Your praise will ever be on my lips Ever be on my lips your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my. You will praise, you will be praised. With angels and saints, we sing worthy are you, Lord. You will be praised, you will be praised. With and saints we sing worthy are you Lord you will be praised you will be praised with angels and saints we sing worthy are you Lord you will be praised you will be praised with angels and saints Praise will 
I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. Father, you alone are worthy of our praise. You alone are holy with every right to be separate from us. But you chose to meet us in our brokenness, in our messiness, that we might understand what it means to be free. I pray that the weight of your love would never fail to bring us to our knees. Lord, I pray for Tyler right now that no more and no less than what you have for us today would be spoken. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Amen. All right, fourth and sixth graders, um, we hope that you will join us next week during the 1045 service to join in on a time of group discussion and hang time. Um, for everyone else, as comfortably as you feel, go ahead and greet someone around you. Right. Good morning, Redemption. My name is Andrea Hamilton. I am the outreach director here at Arcadia. Um, I'm usually hovering around the Connect desk after service, so if you have not already, feel free to stop by and say hi. I would love to meet you at some point. If you are new here, welcome. We are glad to see you.
As a local expression of the family of God, we seek to embody the gospel in all of life in the Arcadia area. We are one church with 10 congregations, are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and believe that all of life is all for Jesus. We have a couple of announcements for you today. As soon as we get those slides, there we go. So next, this Wednesday, we have the men's luncheon at 1145, featuring Neil Pitchell. So men, if you have not already, please go ahead and RSVP on the website so we know how many lunches to order. Secondly, parents, this one is for you. This upcoming Saturday, May 22nd, we'll be hosting Parents' Night Out from 5 to 8 p.m. So bring your kids over and we'll hang out with them, watch a movie, play some games. And I have it on good authority that we'll be filling them with so much sugar that by the time you pick them up, they will have already started onto that descent into sugar crash. So by the time you get home, they'll be done for the night. It's just great fun for everyone. Uh, with that one as well, please RSVP on the website so Emmy knows how many kids to expect. And lastly, Pastor Frank is out this week, but we do have a short message from him, so please take a look. Hey, Redemption Arcadia, it's me, Pastor Frank. I am away right now. I'm either in Illinois or Wisconsin. I can never tell the difference. It's one of the two. It's the Midwest. I don't care. And uh, you just need to know that even though I'm away, you're never far from my thoughts. I know that's cheesy and fuzzy, but it's true. It is true. So listen, one of the great privileges of being a pastor is that I get to talk to a lot of people in the congregation and outside of the congregation. And I get to hear incredible God stories. I get to hear the incredible ways that God is working in people's lives. And my greatest disappointment is that I don't get to share all these stories with everybody. And so a few years ago, we created backstories to be able to do that. And more recently, we've decided to do not only backstories in person, like we did very recently with Chuck and Hannah, which was awesome, but also some digital backstories where we just record it and then we put it on our YouTube channel for you. And so coming this Friday, we're going to be releasing a video of me interviewing a guy named Luke Parker. I've known Luke for about 15 years. I've known his parents for more than 30 years. They're all very dear people to me. And Luke is a church planter in central Phoenix who has some incredible insights and ideas about how to do ministry and how God is working in his life and his family's life. And I just wanted to be able to share this stuff with you. Every time I meet with Luke, I learn something new and I'm blown away by God's grace and mercy. And so I wanted to be able to share that with you. So take a look at this little clip that we have from that interview. And then I hope on Friday you'll go and, and take a look at the entire interview or maybe just listen to it as you're driving around. Thanks. People love to talk about church planting, like right. love to. There's nothing sexier than talking about. Doing it is different. And so I had friends yeah. in these other things like, plan a church man how's it going how many people are coming and I would say I talked to somebody today I feel like it's going okay like I because that was the thing so like I would leave my house and I would walk around and I would pray and I would see strangers shoveling rocks I think I told you that yes. guy, right yeah and so there's a guy shoveling rocks he has two shovels it's a huge pile of rocks he's in his late 50s and I'm in my 30s and I have nothing to do and I say hey man can I help you shovel rocks and he says no <laughs> And I say, no, really, like, I have nothing to do. I'm, I don't need money. Like, it, honestly, it would be nice. I have nothing to do. And he goes, 
no thank you. It's super strong. <laughs> and, I was like, and he had an extra shovel sitting there. Yeah. Right? He had like, and I was like, this is, I don't understand what's happening, right? And so I walked away, <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess I'm just going to walk more today. And so I walked more, and I prayed. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd go into coffee shops and bars and just hope to talk to strangers. That was the thing. And uh, I'd become a missionary to Phoenix. Like, that's really what it is. Please stand for the reading of today's gospel. Today we're reading from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Amen. Thank you, Gail. You may be seated. You've already done that. Good job. You're ahead of the game. Gail, thanks for the reading. My name is Tyler Thompson. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, typically, I'm spending time in the worship ministry uh, and also in the small group ministry. And so if you're interested in either of those areas, I'd love to talk with you. Um, but also, I'm thankful to be able to be on the uh, preaching rotation. And so I'm going to preach this week and next week. Uh, Frank is actually preaching next week in Redemption Flagstaff. So pray for him as he does that, and then also today as he's on his study break as well. Uh, so I'm a part of the pastoral team here, and as, as I was thinking about sort of what pastors do, I thought it might be helpful to share a diagram uh, with you all that I found that is like a, a depiction of what pastors do. So up here on the, on the left, you have what society thinks pastors do, and that is like soapbox, right? That's standing up on a soapbox and telling everybody things that they should do and not do. And this is what, what, what parents think that pastors do, and that's weddings. A lot of weddings, a lot of people do weddings. Uh, a lot of pastors do weddings. Uh, our, my friends think that I do golfing, uh, which is totally off, because I've never played a full round of golf, golf in my whole life. Um, my church thinks I do a lot of study, and uh, Frank is actually doing that this week, so he's on target there as well. Uh, what, what, what we should do is, is feed the sheep, right? We should be feeding the sheep. And then what I actually do oftentimes is vacuuming. And, uh, and, and in case you're wondering, we have actually proof. Of All right. <laughs> 10 out of 10. So proof that pastors actually do vacuum. And it's actually one of the things, having worked with Frank for about a year and a half now, 
It is one of the things that I think that he enjoys doing as much as anything else. He just loves to, to vacuum and serve in that way. And, and the style points, I mean, the behind the back with the vacuum cleaner, I've never seen anything like it. Um, many, many of you probably are wondering uh, how Frank and the family are doing, um, and Jackie is here this morning and, and just wanted to share an update um, that the grandbaby is doing well, Jamie is doing well, thank you for praying. Uh, they, are, they are healing and recovering, but um, everybody's doing well, baby and mom, and, and so what a miracle. Um, truly, uh, the Switzers believe that God has interacted on their behalf or, and, and acted uh, as a response uh, to the prayer, and, and of course God is sovereign and knows what's going to happen, but we, we appreciate you joining uh, in prayer, and, and we, we do believe that there's a miracle that went on there with, with baby Jamie. So thanks for praying with the Switzers on that. Uh, we're going to open up our, our word, uh, the word of the Lord today, in John chapter 12. And just a, a note about what we're doing uh, here as we, as we speak. And, and what I really hope is that God's word speaks, that the, the scripture, as we open it up, that the, by the spirit of God, that, that his words come to the forefront and that uh, he gives us uh, open ears and open eyes, open minds, open hearts, open spirits, open souls, so we might hear what he has to say from his word. Uh, we believe that God's word is living and active. We believe, and, and why we do this week after week after week, is that we believe that God's word is authoritative. We believe that uh, his word spoke reality into existence. So from the very beginning of the world when he said, let there be light and there was light, we believe that God's word creates reality. And so we believe that that very same word is still authoritative today, all of these years later, in our lives and in the world. And so we want his word to speak this morning as we look at John chapter 12. So open up your Bibles if you would. John chapter 12, Gail just read it beautifully. And we're starting in verse 12. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. A couple of things just to point out right away is that this is the next day. That's important because it directly uh, follows what had gone on earlier in the chapter. So what Tyler James spoke on last week about Mary and Martha and the aroma of the church, the church being a pleasing aroma to the Lord, uh, these events are following just on the heels of that. I appreciated so much how Tyler uh, sort of bookend, uh, bookended Lazarus for us and also sort of started the Judas narrative uh, so that Christ at this point is now going to be heading towards his death. He knows it's coming, but others don't. He's aware of the, the, the timing of all of this, but even his disciples who have been doing ministry with him for all this time don't know what's going to be happening here. But the next day, this follows exactly what had just happened with Mary and Martha. And John says, the large crowd. Now, I was tempted when I read that phrase, the large crowd, to think that this was sort of one group of people that all thought the same, looked the same, acted the same, believed the same. But when you look further here and deeper into what's going on, this crowd would have been actually very diverse by this point. And you can tell, actually, if you look into the, the Greek uh, language of what John's saying here about the large, that word large is actually a word that is plural. It, it's, it's meaning many. And that word crowd is singular. Matthew actually uses a word that says crowds, plural. But here John is using the, the singular for crowd. So he's saying the many crowd. 
which is a fascinating uh, thing to me as I'm looking at the scripture because I'm tempted to think that all of these people that came to see, see Jesus were sort of on the same page. They all sort of thought about Jesus the same way. But John's pointing out that there's actually a diversity going on in this crowd that comes. And he mentions at least three different groups that are there that we see later on in verses 16, 17, and 18, and 19. He, he mentioned that there's the disciples that are there, those that have been in ministry with Jesus. He mentions that there's the witnesses to the resurrection of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus. And he mentioned that there's the, there's the Pharisees. So even in these three groups, there's actually vastly different views on who Jesus is and what they're expecting for Jesus to do in this moment. But those aren't the only ones that are there either. If you recall that along the way of Jesus' ministry, he's also picked up a, a, a lot of different kinds of people. We know for sure that he's interacted with, with Greeks. He know, we know for sure that he's interacted with Samaritans. We know for sure that he's act, interacted with men and with women, with people that are rich and people that are poor. We know for sure that he, by this point, Jesus has been interacting with all sorts of people. And they all would have been here at this, this gathering as well. So in this large crowd is a lot of different kinds of people. And I think that's important for us, too, as we start to look at this passage, because even in a room of this size, in Arcadia, Arizona, at Redemption Arcadia, there are a lot of different kinds of people that are here. And you may look around and you may think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like everybody else. But you, you probably have different thoughts than, than the people sitting next to you even, as it pertains to politics, as it pertains to theology, as it pertains to practice of, of how you run your household. Here in this room, we may have people that are um, more, more well-off and people that are actually scrounging for money. Here in this room, are, in this very room, we have people that think differently about the issues that go on in the day. And it's important to note that even here, you all may be coming to Jesus with different viewpoints of who he is and different expectations for what he'll do. I'm, I'm praising the Lord this morning because he's not bound by our expectations. Amen? But rather the Lord is going to, even in this passage, open up uh, a picture of who he is. You've heard that phrase before, the medium is the message. The way that, the way that God is communicated, the way that Jesus is communicating in this scene, tells us a lot about who he is. And he's not bound by our expectations. And I'm thankful for that. So I want to encourage you today, whether you're coming to Jesus uh, from a viewpoint that um, you may share or not share with your neighbor that's sitting next to you, may we hold those loosely this morning so that we can come to the Lord with a fresh eyes about what his scripture would say about who he is and what he does. Is that a deal? Cool. At least seven of you are going to make that deal. <laughs> That's good. So the large crowd that had come to the feast, they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and they're wanting to know what is Jesus going to do. So they took branches. Now, an interesting thing also about the language here. In verse 13, the Greek doesn't actually have they there. It's just saying taking branches, basically. So this crowd is taking branches. The reason I want to point that out is because it's not as simple as, well, the disciples took branches or the people that witnessed the raising of Lazarus took branches. But there was a group of people who took branches at this point 
and were ready to actually respond in praise to the fact that Jesus had come into the city. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. A few things here, the palm trees would have been a symbol of peace, that there would have been an indication that the palms were being waved, uh, acknowledging that there was a hope for peace as Jesus had come. Now, how do you get to peace? There's all kinds of different viewpoints about how we get to peace. And we're going to see that played out here in a few minutes as well in the passage. But the palm branches are being waved because they have become a symbol of peace. And even in the second temple, there was uh, oftentimes palm branches as a way of saying that God will make peace in the world. How many of you agree that the world is not at peace? Whew. Just when you think that you've seen it all, there's an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And you wonder how much more this year has to throw at us. But I think we would all agree that the world is not at peace. And that we, we too want a savior, a king who will come and who will bring peace to this world. Now you might not agree with your neighbor about how, how to get to that peace. But if we can hold that loosely and understand that Jesus is the one who will bring the peace, he will lead the way towards that. So we want to see who he is and how he will do that. So they bring palm branches, and they're throwing the, the branches down on the ground as well, and their, their coats as well, and Jesus is riding in over, the, over the, the, the palm branches and the coats. So they cry out to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now that phrase, Hosanna, is... Uh, a phrase that has been used in the, in the scripture previously. It's actually Psalm 118 is being quoted here. And in Psalm 118, there is a cry, a desperate cry from the people for God to save now. Hosanna basically means save now. I, I oftentimes think of Hosanna in terms of what we've done uh, in our worship services where we'll sing Hosanna. I, I think of it as a term of praise, and I think it is that. But it's a little more desperate than that. It's save now. We desire for you to save us here and now. There's a, a pleading with the king for peace to come at this moment. So they say, Hosanna. Let me read that passage in Psalm 118. If you want to turn to your Bible, in your Bible, you can, but it's also here on the screen. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This is a beautiful passage, and, and Kirk, you can actually leave that there for just a minute. I want to talk about a few things with it. One is that this would have been known as sort of a, a royal parade, in the, in the, a priestly parade or a royal parade in the Psalms. In other words, that there's a progression or a parade that is happening with the people, and they're starting out outside of the temple, and by the end of it, they're coming into the outer part of the temple. They're coming into the house of the Lord. And so as they're, they're making their way from outside the temple into the house of the Lord, they're saying these words, save us, God. And we know that as we come to your house, that you will provide a way of salvation for us. 
So save us. And then it says, blessed be, uh, oh Lord, we pray, give us success. You know what's interesting about that is that oftentimes I think when we think about success, we think about, well, Lord, give me, bless me with, with career and bless me with money and bless me uh, with, with possessions and popularity and power. I don't think that that's what the prayer is here. The, the, the prayer here for success, I believe, is for God's will to succeed in our lives. So as they're saying, oh Lord, we pray, give us success, they're saying, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the people in this psalm actually are facing enemies. The king is facing enemies. So earlier in the psalm, there's all this language about the enemies that are surrounding the king. And I'm blown away by that because even as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, there are enemies all around him. If you think it's not that many days from that point where he'll go to the cross, that there are people in that crowd that will actually participate in putting him on the cross. The king is definitely surrounded by enemies in the triumphal entry. And that's what's going on in this psalm as well. There's enemies all around the king, but we know that he has given us salvation. So it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That phrase is just repeated in the John passage. That phrase, he who comes, he who comes, was known to be a way of saying the Messiah, the expected one who would come to set everything right. So they would actually say he who comes as a name for this Messiah. It was sort of like saying he who must not be named in that other literary thing. Uh, Only the opposite of that, because that guy was a bad guy. But everybody knew when you said he who must not be named... They knew who you were talking about. I won't say his name here. (laughs) But it was the opposite of that. They knew that he who comes was this Messiah who would come to restore all things. And so they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's the name of the Lord? Yahweh. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in this line, we bless you from the house of God. I love this as well because there's an, an indication that the, the, the hope when you get to the temple, the hope is as you move into the temple and the king comes and takes his right place on the throne, that that house would be a blessing to the world. And I see this also happening in the triumphal entry because the people that are surrounding Jesus and waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, they will become the house of God, the temple of the Lord, whose purpose will be that through Christ and his people, the all nations will be blessed. Isn't that beautiful? This is a king who intends for his kingdom to be one that blesses the world. And so we bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. That also sounds a ton like John, doesn't it? Back to John chapter 1, that we we have seen the light, but the darkness has not understood it. That God has made the light, his light to shine upon us. This was the intent from John all along, right? That, That we would believe that he is the son of God. And that God has made his light shine through Jesus that we might understand that he is indeed the Son of God. And so I love that passage that is referenced here in John chapter 12. That with, that with this uh, procession that we see into the triumphal entry, it's almost as though this Psalm 18 passage is being lived out in fulfillment. And I actually, just one brief note by the way. 
We oftentimes wonder what is the relationship of the law for the Christian, and, and, and Jesus will say, right, we, we don't throw out the law, but I, I've not come to throw out the law or, or abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. I think there's a thing that's happening here, too, with Psalm 118, where God is fulfilling, Jesus is fulfilling what Scripture has said. And he'll ask us, actually, as his church, to fulfill Scripture as well in our lives. His word might be played out in the world. So they say, Hosanna, back to John 12, verse 13. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the last little tag there is, even the king of Israel. The reason that John throws that in here is that there's an acknowledgement that Jesus is the king that Israel has long awaited for. If you remember back to the Old Testament when they were pleading for a king. And so God gave them Saul. And we know that that didn't work out very well. And if you don't, you can go back and, and read that account of the life of Saul. That, that, that John is acknowledging here that this king that has come is the king that Israel has been pleading for all of this time. And it's mentioned two other places in the Gospel of John, that, that phrase, king of Israel. The first is in the first chapter of John, when, when Jesus is calling his disciples for the first time. And they, they say, we know that you are the king of Israel. And the second place that this phrase, the king of Israel, is listed is when Jesus is on the cross and they're actually mocking him as the king of Israel. They're making fun of that status. But again, Jesus is not bound by the expectations or the viewpoints of other people. He is indeed the king of Israel. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. I love this too that Jesus found a donkey, because that's what he does. He finds what he needs. I thought about that for a moment this week as well, that there's a, there's a need that Jesus has for this donkey at this point. And we oftentimes think, and rightly so, God doesn't have any needs. And that's true. But Jesus had needs. He needed sustenance. He needed food. He needed water. He needed rest. Him being fully divine and fully man, Jesus had needs. And in this moment, he needed a donkey. If you look at another account of this in Luke, um, and again, all the gospel accounts mention uh, this story, so we know that it's important. I've said this before, but the reason we have four different accounts is sort of like having four different uh, photographers at a wedding. You're catching different angles of the same scene. I shared uh, with the women's Bible study at one point that I, I was a third shooter for a wedding when my wife used to do wedding photography. And so now I put that on my resume, that I'm a third shooter at weddings. If you need a wedding third shooter, I'm your man. <laughs> but I love the process of that because what, what you're doing is you're getting several different angles of the same event. And it's not as though one of the angles is more true than the other, but you're catching different angles, right? And I did get one or two photos that got used by the bride and groom, so I felt good about that. <laughs> That's not very many. <laughs> uh, so in Luke, Luke will point out the whole process of getting the, the donkey. And Jesus actually says to the disciples, uh, tell them that the Lord has need of it. In other words, tell them that, the, that, that God needs this donkey. And can you imagine sort of being that that person who owns the donkey and the disciples come to you and say, hey, God needs your donkey. It's a good thing they gave it to him. 
I think there are times in our lives, and this is just a point off the cuff, that, that God will have need of our possessions and that we want to be able to hold those things loosely to say if God needs it, God needs it. And we'll just give it up willingly. And so he found a colt. He found the donkey's colt and he sat on it just as it is, it is written. And, and even the language there, one of the commentators that I was reading said there's a reason that John doesn't say that he, that he mounted the, the, the colt or he got up on the colt, but that he sat on it. There's, a, there's a, an image there of that, that that seat is his, his rightful seat anyway, that he's already sitting on the colt or, or, or that he's sitting on the throne, that, that he is already in the position that he needs to be in. So rather than saying mounting, John says, and he sat on it, just as it is, it is written. Now here's a second passage that is going to be quoted from the Old Testament, and this is one is out of Zechariah 9, 9 which is the, the second to last book in the Old Testament. And so you're getting real close at that point towards the, the 400 years between the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the coming of the Messiah. Uh, but this, this, is, this is quoted in Zechariah 9.9, and um, the, the, the passage, I'll just read this passage as well. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and, I, and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. This is one of my favorite passages. Kurt, go back one slide just for a moment, if you would. So we're pointing out here that he'll be mounted already on a donkey, that he'll be riding in humble with, humbly with salvation with him, and that this Jesus who rides in on the donkey's colt will actually cut off all the war horses of the world. I think that that's significant because many people who are in this crowd expected for Jesus to come on a war horse. If he was going to bring peace as the king of Israel, that there was an expectation that he was going to come on a war horse ready to dominate. And that peace might only come through war. But as I read this week, in a great book that you can check out, it's called The Anatomy of Peace. The author says that there are two ways to take Jerusalem. You can come on a war horse or you can come on a donkey's colt. Now we may expect the Lord to save us now by a war horse, but, and we may be looking ahead to that time when he will do this. But Jesus who is in command of all time and all space, knows exactly what we need when we need it. And what we needed at this moment was the donkey's colt. That he came with peace, humbly on the colt, bringing salvation. And he's speaking peace to the nations. How many nations across our world need that message today? That Jesus speaks 
peace to the nations. Now that next line there that said, and he will rule from sea to sea, I think is what's the most important line of the psalm. That the only way that we have peace among the nations is acknowledging that Jesus is king. Because too often times we're wanting to set up our own kingdoms. Now this happens with nations, but it also happens with people. This happens with nations, but it also happens with families. It happens in marriages. It happens with kids. That we can approach things oftentimes with a heart of war rather than a heart of peace. You ever been around somebody who just is ready to fight? A few of you? I can acknowledge, even in this week, a place where that played out in my own life in an interaction with my daughter, Charlotte, where I could tell that I just had a heart of war with her at the time. And that she had a heart of war with me. And you know if you ever get into an interaction like that, nothing you say is going to help. People are just ready to fight back. You ever been there? Anybody there right now? I think if we look at what's going on in our world and the things that we've been through over the last year and a half and the things that are going on even now, much of it can be attributed to the fact that we have hearts of war towards God and hearts of war towards one another. That we want to be on the war horse. We want our king to look sort of like Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. Let's get that picture up there, yeah. I did this for uh, Malia, but she's not even here today. So somebody tell tell her that Aragorn was on, on the screen in church. She'll be really happy. We want our king to look like this. Rugged, handsome, strong, ready to kick some butt. I think oftentimes that we look at Jesus, we want to picture him like this. But for those of us that are looking for a king on a war horse, I think we must acknowledge that we first needed the king on the colt. That we needed God to make peace between us, and I mean us and him, before we're ready for him to come on the war horse. Because if he doesn't make peace with us before, then when he comes on the war horse, we're going to be on the receiving end of that war. Many of you know from reading the word and from hearing messages in this church that by nature we are separated from God. And if you haven't heard that message, I hope that you'll hear that understanding that what we see in the world around us and what we see in the world in us is evidence of the fact that we are by nature separated from God. And that he came first to make peace. And he'll come again one day as the king on the war horse. I think for each of us, we might want to consider in what ways am I having a heart of war towards Jesus? In what ways am I having a heart of war towards my neighbor, towards my spouse? towards my kids, towards my parents. Some of you kids that are in the room, you ever have a heart of war with your parents? 
The Lord intends for us to have a heart of peace. And he came as a model of that on this donkey's colt. I also appreciate one more note on verse 15, that Jesus came saying, fear not. Knowing that there's a lot of fear. There was at this time for those that were saying, Hosanna, save us. And there is at this time in our own hearts. We just have a lot of fear. Fear about what might happen or someone might do to us. What might go on in the world. And I I won't get political, but there are a number of different groups that you might fear. The king on the colt comes saying, fear not. And he comes in peace with salvation for the nations. Isn't that good news? It's good news. Verse 16. At this point, John transitions from the scene. And by the way, if you want to look at at more angles, like the photographer of this this passage, check it out. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's, there's other great angles of what's going on in this passage. But John turns at this point and is now looking at three of those groups that he mentioned, and he's mentioning how they responded to this triumphal entry. So he's going to mention how the disciples responded, how the witnesses responded, and how the Pharisees responded. And I think that you might actually just see some of yourself in one of these groups or multiple groups. I know that at one point or another, I've been every one of these groups. It's one of the advantages of being over the hill now. (laughs) You've lived long enough to be both the older son and the prodigal son in in that parable. I feel like I've been each one of these groups at this point as well. But you might consider, is there a way that you're responding that is similar to these groups also? So verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Isn't this amazing that the disciples who had walked with Jesus all this time in ministry had spent, had given away everything in their lives to go follow Jesus and had been a part of the, the, the miracles that, they, that Jesus had done had been a part of the teaching that Jesus had done, had uh, traveled with him, um, had eaten with him, had rested with him, that all this is happening and the disciples don't understand these things. I take some heart in that because as a disciple of Jesus and a follower of Jesus, there are things that I don't understand either. And I think that I'm encouraged by the fact that I don't have to understand everything. And yet... And yet, it's clear that the disciples are missing Jesus here. And I think we can be like that as well, that we can can read the Word of God, and we can pray, and we can go to church, and we can go to small group, and we can serve on ministry teams, and and we can do our quiet times, and we can talk about God, and we can actually just miss Jesus in the midst of it all. I love those aha moments where you're thinking one way about Jesus and and he surprises you. I've never seen it that way before. Where your viewpoint gets challenged because of the way that God has spoken by his spirit and his word. I I love that Jesus does that for us by his grace and his mercy. So after, when Jesus was glorified, says verse 16, when he was glorified, that that phrase, when he was glorified, refers largely 
to his death, burial, and resurrection. And we know that because uh, Jesus is going to be saying, now the hour has come for me to be glorified. Father, glorify your son. So as we come up in the next few chapters of John, you're going to see that, that language that Jesus knows exactly when his time to be glorified is. But check out what he's talking about. Him being glorified means him going to his death. The most glorifying moment of Jesus' life was when he went to the cross and gave himself as a ransom for the entire world. And yes, then he was buried. And yes, then he rose on the third day. This, this language that he was glorified refers to that whole death, burial, resurrection process that Jesus goes through. Do you ever notice that there's sort of like a progressive glorifying of Jesus as we go through the Gospel of John? That he's born in sort of like, and as you look at the other Gospel accounts, he's born in sort of humble estates. At, and then at some point, you, you're, you're moving along with him and people start to follow him. And there's more and more folks that are sort of rallying to the cause of Jesus and more and more folks who are working against him. And you have the transfiguration where, where the light of God is radiant in Jesus. And you have him going to his death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And then you have the ascension of Christ. And one day we will see him reigning on his throne face to face. There's sort of a progression of Jesus being glorified. What that means is that it takes us some time to come to understanding who Jesus is. And the disciples here just don't understand it yet, but after he went to his death and after he was buried, after he, had, he was raised from the dead, they, I can picture them saying, you remember that passage in Zechariah? Remember that passage in Psalm 118? When it said that he was going to ride in on a horse and that he was going to save us, Could this be what he just did? I would have loved to have seen the aha moment on their face in the, on Resurrection Sunday as they understood what Jesus had done. I think there's a, a, an, an encouragement for us as, as disciples and followers of Jesus to check where we're missing who Jesus is. In all of our knowledge and our research and our time in church and our time in the word and time in prayer and talking with one another, sometimes we can form opinions about him that are our own and that are not his. Sometimes we can have expectations of him that are our own and are not his. But Jesus knows how to save us no matter what beast he is riding. Amen? He is king regardless of if he's on a colt or a war horse. He can save us in a house and with a mouse and on a box and with a fox. And even if you don't like Dr. Seuss. He can save us in any way that he choose, chooses. And he chose to go to his death because that was the only way that he might do, provide atonement for the whole world. But in your, in your everyday experience, he can save you in any way he chooses. It might just not look like what we expect it to. And I think as, as disciples and followers of Jesus, sometimes we have these expectations where we have misunderstandings of who Jesus is and what he wants to do. He can deliver us in any situation that we have. 
And more importantly, he already has by his death and his burial and his resurrection. The second group is the crowd that Jesus had, uh, had, had been around when Lazarus was raised out of the tomb. In verse 17, it says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So this second group is coming. They're continuing to bear witness of the fact that he has raised the dead. Oftentimes, though, even seeing and bearing witness to a good thing about Jesus can get tainted and corrupted in our own lives. There were many people that were in this group that were looking for Jesus to perform another miracle. And that's okay. We, want, we know that Jesus performs miracles and we want him to continue to perform miracles. But sometimes we can be so obsessed with the miracle that we lose sight of the Savior himself. Isn't that right? There's a great song, let me, let me want the healer rather than the healing. Let me want the Savior rather than the saving. That we want Jesus for who he is himself, even if that next miracle doesn't come. In our preaching collective, one of the pastors was reflecting on, on when Lazarus was raised from the dead and said, what about the other folks who were standing around and have seen now Lazarus raised from the dead and are looking at the tombs of their loved ones and saying, why didn't he raise my son? Why didn't he raise my daughter? My dad, my mom. There's a sense where we can expect and demand of Jesus another miracle as though the first one was not enough. Now, the good news is God will continue to do miracles in our lives. He's not done doing miracles. In fact, if you have come to belief in, 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 in Jesus, that in itself is a miracle of God. But our belief has to be independent of the proof that he will do more miracles. It's sort of like saying, hey, prove it again. Prove it again. Prove it again. Which is a heart of war posture. And it's much different than a heart of peace posture that says, Lord, save us again. Deliver us again. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul uh, prays that prayer, saying, God, we've seen you deliver us, and we ask you now to deliver us again. In other words, Paul knows that Jesus has done the ultimate deliverance in his death and his burial and his resurrection, and he knows that if he can do that, he can deliver us again from whatever he's facing. How many of you have something in your life now that you would like to ask God to deliver you again? Yeah. God, deliver us again. But it's a different posture than saying, prove it, which sometimes our heart go, hearts go there. May we have a heart of peace towards God that says, God, we know that you have delivered us. Will you deliver us again? The third group was the Pharisees. And in verse 19, it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I love that they're saying this to each other. Turn to your neighbor and say, You see that you are gaining nothing. <laughs> All right, four of you did that. You see that you are gaining nothing. How did that feel to say that to your neighbor? <laughs> How did it feel to receive that from your neighbor? They're fighting amongst themselves in a way that, like, the, Jesus has the Pharisees completely flustered at this point. See, the whole world has gone after him. 
In other words, everything that the Pharisees have been fighting for is being undone by this king on a cult of peace. It's almost as though the harder the Pharisees fight against Jesus, the more Jesus succeeds in what he's doing, right? And if his destination is the cross, then Jesus is well aware that the opposition that is there has to continue to do what it's doing. In other words, there needs to be this group that's going to put Jesus on the cross. Some people wonder why, why, are, why is there any division before between the wicked and the righteous? Why is there any division at all amongst people? And we read in our prayer time this morning, Psalm 1, about the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. And the reason is, is that there are going to be people who have hearts of war towards Jesus that are not going to come to his call for peace. In Isaiah, it says, how I've longed to gather you. Ben read this last week on Mother's Day. How I have longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come. Some of us are so entrenched in our heart of war that we are just not willing to come to the king who comes with peace. And the Pharisees are sitting here and watching, and their response is not, well, I guess I better start following the Messiah. The response is to hold on to their own power and their own kingdom. And their own... There are times in my life, there's another confession, there are times in my life that I have seen another pastor that's doing well. And in my own flesh, I have said to myself, but if he does well, I'll get less opportunities. Pastor's confessions right there. Not acknowledging the fact that a heart of peace towards God and a heart of peace towards my neighbor says that God is going to humble the proud and he's going to lift up the humble at due time. But sometimes I'm so invested in my own kingdom that even as the whole world goes after Jesus, I'm going to sit I'm going to sit in my chair and fold my arms. I hope I don't offend anybody who's sitting in their chairs and folding their arms. <laughs> Jesus loves you guys too. And so do I. Consider if you might be like one of those groups, like the disciples who are just missing Jesus or like uh, the Pharisees who are so invested in their own kingdom that you can't see the good of the world going after Jesus. Or if, or if you're like, if you're like uh, the, the witnesses to the tomb of, of Lazarus who are saying, hey, prove it again. I'll believe next time. Yeah, sure. Sure you will. Our hearts can go towards a heart of war, towards Jesus and towards one another, and thankfully Jesus continues on his path to the cross, acknowledging that this sacrifice would be the one that would make peace with the nations. Now next week, Jesus is going to talk about how a kernel must, must die, a seed must die before it can be multiplied. And so we'll, we'll take that passage next week, but part of what also happens next week 
is that John makes mention of the fact that the Greeks have started to follow Jesus. So now not only are Jews following Jesus, but the Greeks have started to believe on Jesus as well. And in other words, the peace that Jesus has for the nations is starting to open up. And it's why the, the Pharisees, who are actually prophetic in this moment, say, see, the whole world is going after him. Because Jesus has salvation for the whole world. And not everybody will come to him. But every kind of person can come to him. So any kind of person in this room can come to King Jesus because of the work that he has done on the death, in his death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. Check out in closing this last passage. This is in Revelation 19. This is the war horse. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dip, uh, in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Amen. This God who came on a colt will one day come on the war horse, but it is good for us that he first came on a colt. So there is an opportunity for each one of us to repent, to turn, and to go to this king, to give our lives to him, allow him to make a heart of peace with us, that we, we might one day reign with him for all eternity. Don't let your misunderstanding or your own kingdom or any of those things get in the way. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your word that you are faithful and true. That, Lord, that you are the king on the colt and you are the king on the war horse. And Lord, even as I think of that passage and the image of you having a robe that is dipped in blood, God, we acknowledge that that's your own blood that you shed for us. That Lord, you spilled as the sacrificial lamb, that you spilled your own blood. You died for us that we might have life. So God, I pray that we would not let anything get in the way of us coming to you, our King. That you would help us to put aside any hindrances or distractions or obstacles. Our own kingdoms. That you, Lord, might be the King of our hearts. So God, we praise you that you have made a way of salvation. And even now, Lord, we... We come to a time of communion and we, 
We pray your blessing over the cup, the bread and the cup, Lord, that as symbols of your body and your blood, that you would remind us that you are king. So God, we praise you. We confess our sin to you. We repent and we turn towards you. Help us to have a heart of peace towards you and towards one another. And Lord, we look forward to that day that you will return to judge and to rule the nations and make peace forevermore. So God, even now, bless this time of communion as we recall your death, your burial, your resurrection until you come again. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, we'll take communion at this time. If you don't have uh, a communion elements, they are in the single serve materials in the back. You're welcome to get that. There are folks that will be praying up at the front if you'd like to pray with someone. But we take the, the bread and the cup as symbols of his body and his blood given for us. And we pray that you would be, you would be blessed in this time as we reflect on his death and resurrection. Amen.
for you do whatever you want to do whatever you want to and I will make room for you to do whatever you want to do whatever you want to Jesus I will make room for you Do whatever you want to To do whatever you want to Jesus I will make room for you To do whatever you want to To do whatever you want to
in every crown. This is my surrender. This is my surrender. Here is where I lay it down. You are all I'm chasing now. This is my surrender. This is my surrender.
amen to that. I was thinking of coming up and praying, but we just prayed in song, and that was perfect for what we heard. Thank you for that message. Thank you all for being here and worshiping with us. I'm going to read the benediction over us. Uh, this comes from Second Th Thessalonians uh, 16. Oop, hold on. There. Air conditioning is really pumping. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We love you guys. We'll see you next week.